Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining me today is my good friend, Dr. Mark Lewis, the CEO of Purdue University's Applied Research Institute, otherwise known as PARI. Uh, doctor, welcome back to the program. Vago, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is uh, always a delight. Uh, and uh, a brief note, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Uh, okay, doctor, uh, I want to first start with uh, the Institute. Uh, you, it's been uh, about 10 months uh, since you joined the Purdue team there, specifically to create um, a, a unique scientific capability that only resides in a few other institutions across the country. Um, a big focus, obviously, on hypersonics, including a, an extraordinary wind tunnel capacity you guys are building, uh, but as well across the entire spectrum of capabilities we need for future weapon systems, whether uh, on the electronic side of things, on the materials, on energetics, uh, as, as well as the software that kind of goes into them. Walk, walk, to us, walk us through, Mark, a little bit of the capabilities you guys are building and where you guys are on that, um, on that uh, uh, you know, on the progress sheet, given that you guys have made an enormous amount of progress just in the 10 months since you've been there. Right. Well, Vago, thank you for the opportunity to talk about Parry. Um, so, you know, as, as, as you point out, Purdue created our organization, the Applied Research Institute, as really a standalone uh, LLC. We're a 501c3, and we were created to take what's done at the university, but take it to the next step, do more applied work, work in areas that, frankly, universities don't traditionally work in, do more uh, national security work, even do work at the classified level. Um, the aspiration is, of course, the, the inspiration is other universities that have done similar exercises. Uh, the Georgia Tech Research Institute, the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, the MIT Lincoln Lab. Um, that, that's kind of our aspirational goal. We've got a long way to get there. Those are amazing organizations. We're, we're obviously new. Um, our PARI is divided into several uh, divisions. Um, we do a lot of national security, and I'll come back and talk about uh, our work in national security, and in particular hypersonics. Uh, we also do infrastructure. Um, we have some amazing civil engineers who are involved in our institute, uh, led by one of the one of Purdue's foremost faculty members, uh, Professor Amit Varma. Um, they work on rapid construction of concrete structures. You can imagine the national security implications of that. Um, we have an entire part of the organization that uh, works on global development, and in particular, working around the world to uh, uh, you know working on on such things as cybersecurity and education. Uh, our Global Development Institute is in countries uh, in the Middle East, in Africa, working primarily with uh, State Department and USAID. And then we actually also have an entire venture capital arm of the Institute that does investment in small companies. It's led right. by one of our other faculty members, Alan Gray, uh, who's a leader on the Purdue campus. Um, if I can come back to the national security mission. So we've really focused it for now in a few key areas. Uh, Purdue has had a long, rich history of work in microelectronics and especially teamed up with our partners in Indiana that are NSWC Crane, the Naval Service Warfare Center Crane, right. which is one of the DOD centers for microelectronics. So that's a big activity. And we've got we've got work going on uh, actually across from the main gate at NSWC Crane. It's probably our most important government relationship. Um, also working in the area of energetic materials. Um, Purdue has a long, rich history of work in energetic materials. One of our faculty members, uh, Steve Bowden, is probably the world's foremost expert in this area. That's explosives, rocket fuels, you name it. And that's an area that needs a lot of investment. 
uh, just as we're seeing, trying to supply the needs, ammunition needs for Ukraine. And then, of course, hypersonics. And as, as you well know, you know, I, I, I'm a hypersonics guy through and through. And that's a major, major thrust area for us. You mentioned we're building wind tunnels. We're building manufacturing capabilities, um, all leveraging, again, expertise on campus, but taking it one notch up to have a test and evaluation infrastructure on campus, to have a manufacturing infrastructure, all to meet those national needs that, that you and I have talked about before. Right. Um, I am uh, very eager uh, to delve into uh, a couple of different elements of this. As you know, um, I was uh, up at GE Aerospaces. Uh, obviously, they're a sponsor, and they uh, sponsored a trip uh, with reporters and think tankers up to their facility uh, in upstate New York, and it was incredibly illuminating on what they're doing and what the state of the art is on materials, on uh, uh, propulsion, as well as microelectronics. And I want to kind of get walk through all of, of where we stand on the as state of the art on this. But what, one of the points that you uh, noted, which I think is interesting, right, that has been very successful for uh, MIT, uh, for Caltech, uh, uh, for Berkeley, is the notion of actually using the uh, university's research partnering then with industry, then spinning the technology off and then using the revenue to strengthen the programs uh, across the entire enterprise, right? Which is- Right, uh, right um, exactly. Uh, right, and how important is that gonna be to fund actually future science, right? Because you guys are looking for a third stream, not just donors and government grants and government work, but actually to generate some of your own resources, right? At the end yeah, of the day. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the partnership with industry is absolutely a key element of what we're doing. I'll give you an example. You, you mentioned GE Aerospace. So we're partnered hand in glove with another part of GE, uh, GE Additive, uh, on our manufacturing capabilities. Um, we're working with a bunch of other companies. Um, we're working with uh, Lidos Dynetics, for example, on the in the hypersonic area. Uh, they're, they're, you know, lead on flight testing. So we can bring, uh, you know, ground testing capability that matches what they're doing in flight testing. Uh, we're working with a company called Strata Launch, which um, uh, I think we've, you and I have talked about before. Uh, again, Indeed. doing doing uh, hypersonic flight testing. So so it's, it's this marriage of academia, industry, government, but really we're driven by the needs of the nation in delivering these, technologies, these capabilities that we know are going to be important for the future fight. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the materials uh, end of uh, the equation. Um, one of the things which I thought was uh, fascinating is uh, ceramic matrix uh, composites. They're great, extremely high temperature materials. Uh, obviously, General Electric has been using that in its uh, engines. Um, and when you infiltrate them, uh, with chemical vapors, you can even get higher temperature materials out of it. But what I thought was most interesting was that the United States kind of has a boutique capability for select applications, right? Hypersonics, mm -hmm. high temperature engines, some space applications, whereas the Chinese have created a national industrial base and are using CMCs in things that don't need CMCs specifically to create a larger industrial structure, right? To have the materials when it needs them, which is kind right. of a clever way of doing it, right? Always better to make that investment before you really need them. Whereas in our yes. case, it seems to be lagging. What's, you know, we, we had a CHIPS Act, Mark, which is terrific yep. and obviously a very important national investment in this capability. Uh, but actually, if you look at it, we don't really invest in a lot of the other elements of the ecosystem that are needed. And I want to, and we'll get to high temperature electronics in a second, but on the material side of things, what are some of the things that have to happen for us to have 
Uh, right, you and I have talked many times before that one of the things that Neil Thorgood was trying to do leading the hypersonics effort uh, to, to field a battery of hypersonic missiles uh, was to create that industrial base. What are some of the things that have to happen on high temperature materials and better materials overall that we might need to be thinking if we're going to take a strategic approach to this? So if I could, let me let me take a step back and ask, you know, what what are the roadblocks to delivering hypersonic capabilities? And if we're having this conversation, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I'd say, well, you know, there's still technologies we need to develop, uh, propulsion technologies, other aspects of that. We, we've kind of, we've, we've kind of, we, we, we've solved most of those problems. In fact, we solved almost all those problems. We've, we've done hypersonic demonstrators that have worked, they've been effective. And so the next step is to deliver these capabilities and deploy them. So I would argue that our next big roadblock is actually cost. It's the cost of these systems. And that's the thing that's that's really limiting us. Whenever you mention hypersonics to someone, they immediately say, oh, but those are going to be expensive. And I, I actually do push back on that a little bit. There are, you know, a whole range of hypersonic weapons you can envision, everything from relatively small cruise missiles to larger, medium range uh, maneuvering uh, uh, missile systems. Um, but if you step back and say, OK, why exactly are these things so expensive? So let me take the issue. Let me take the case. So for example, why are of, they expensive? All doctor? right. I'm, gl I'm glad you asked. So if you look at, say, a hypersonic cruise missile, say something that's powered by a supersonic combustion ramjet, and you compare it to a low speed alternative, maybe a Tomahawk, our best estimates are maybe we can get the cost of the hypersonic thing down to about twice the cost of the subsonic thing. Now, if you look at the engine, the design of a scramjet, it's a really simple engine. Right. It is an it is a channel. It is an open channel. It's got almost no moving parts. Air comes in the front. Fuel gets injected by pressure. It mixes. It burns. It goes out the back. You don't have compressors. You don't have turbines. Nothing's moving. Nothing's spinning. You don't have, have bearings. So you step back and say, okay. So if I don't have all those parts, why aren't I less expensive? And it usually comes down to the materials. Right. And I would argue that there are two elements of that. First. It's the cost of the material itself. But second, it's the cost of manufacturing with these materials. And as, as just one example, if I look at the evolution of systems, you know, in the, in the 2010 to 2013 timeframe, the Air Force flew the X-51, which is, of course, one of my favorite programs. Um, now, if you look at the engines, the scramjets that are being produced for the next generation, uh, weapons that came out of the DARPA Hawk program leading into the Air Force Hackham program, the price of manufacturing has come way, way down. And the reason is the X-51 engines were basically hand-built and they were done with traditional manufacturing methods. The current generation of scramjets can be done with additive manufacturing. It lends itself beautifully, beautifully to the manufacturer of these systems. But here's the, here's the existing stumbling block. We're still not good at additive manufacture at scale. And we still haven't gotten the timelines for additive manufacturing. And so that's that's something that we're 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 addressing uh in, in fact as part of our research portfolio um at, at Parrot. Um I'll I'll give you I'll give you just one example. So we recently had a project, in fact, it's an ongoing project, where we did additive manufacturing of a small-scale supersonic combustion ramjet in the lab, and then we're gonna take it across the street at Purdue and do propulsion testing. Uh, um, right. It was, you know, it's it was high, built out of a high temperature metal. It's an additive machine that basically does a the powder based system. Um, it's it's a marvel to behold, but it takes about fifteen days from start to finish to manufacture that part. 
And it's just the time required right. for do it for 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 uh, build for the build up process. We've only got one machine that can do that. So that means every time we build one of these engines, it's 15 days. Now, it used to be it took a lot longer. And the reason it took longer was you built the part and invariably when it was all done, there were distortions introduced due to thermal stresses. And so you'd figure out how, how the manufacturing thing compared to the design thing and you'd make corrections and you'd do it again. And sometimes you had to do a third cycle. So you're talking about you know maybe two and a half months just to get your part manufactured. So we're working on ways to reduce that, better modeling, better understanding of the thermal stresses. We've gotten to the point where we can actually produce a part and it's right the first time. But this is an example of the investments that we need to make to, to, get, to get production at scale. Let me uh, take you uh, to the question of micro uh, or the electronics, right? The heat sensitive yep. electronics. Um, a hypersonic body, even on the inside of it, is 800 degree centigrade, right? That's pretty hot. And what people yeah. should understand is, right, even though we're transitioning to a three nanometer technology for chips, those chips stop working above 120 degrees Fahrenheit more often than right. not. Um, right. As opposed, you know, so welcome back to the 1990s. You know, you're at millimeter. Uh, wave uh, millimeter uh, scale uh, chips when you get to that high temperature. And I know GE and a number of other companies are working on that. Uh, so are you guys. Um, what does that industrial base need to look like, Mark? Right. I mean, as we're making this national chip investment and oh, yep. by the way, an enormous number of our weapon systems still depend. I had to explain what 8086 meant to somebody last week, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And what 486 me means, and 486 was lightning faster than 8086. And yet a lot of our weapons are still full of those chips uh, yep. and was, you know, a question of, wait a minute, who who's manufacturing that capability uh, for, for us? Walk us through what on the military side are our chip and microelectronic requirements in the ecosystem required to produce them. So let me, if I could, <laughs> let me let me take another one of those steps back and explain why I think the high temperature microelectronics is such an important issue. Because as you say, you know, if if, if uh, we we have the technology to manufacture chips that will operate at high temperature, that has profound implications for the entire hypersonic system. All right. If I have to control the internal te temperatures of my weapons or my vehicle. That mean, that puts a much stronger burden on the thermal protection system and the structure of the entire hypers uh, hypersonic, whatever it is, right? So if I can get the temperature, the operating temperatures of the internal components up, that means I have uh, smaller requirements, I have lesser requirements on the thermal protection system. That translates into two things. I can save on cost because that's less high temperature material, less manufacturing than high temperature material, but also I get better performance out of the weapon because that added thermal protection system is dead weight on the missile. If I can reduce the structural mass of the missile, I get more fuel on board. I get more warhead on board. So it's actually a really important thing. And my, my friends at Lockheed Martin, um, colleague by the name of Grant Meyer has been, been leading this charge now for a couple of years, pointing out the significance of having high temperature microelectronics. Um, Right. I'd observe that this is one example, you know, there, there, there are areas of microelectronics where the DOD can clearly and should clearly leverage the commercial sector. It won't be able to leverage the entire commercial sector. You know, high temperature microelectronics is one area. Radiation hardened microelectronics, that's another area for some of the applications right. that we have. And 
So what this does is we really kind of need this two-pronged approach. I'd argue that in most cases, the, 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 the most significant thing we need to do, the most important thing we need to do, is to get the DOD back onto what I call the commercial curve. That is, get the DOD to start using the microelectronic components that are available to us in the commercial sector. And I'll explain why that's so important. Um, the DOD is a very small buyer of microelectronics. The DOD buys less than 2% of the microelectronics output. As I'm, as I'm fond of saying, there are an awful lot more iPhones out there than there are F-35s. So it's very, very difficult for the DOD to drive advances in the field and probably shouldn't. The commercial sector is moving so quickly that what we really want is for the DOD to leverage all those advances. Now, you always run, run into the problem of if you're buying commercial, com commercial microelectronics, does right. that compromise your security? And we know that there are approaches that you can take where you use commercial things, but you protect yourself and you do not compromise your security. And that's something that you know, certainly when I was in the Pentagon, we put a very strong emphasis on, and I think it's the right way to go. But then I'll kind of come back to, there are always going to be those special things you need to buy for the DOD, those special capabilities. And I, I want to see, see those prioritized, for example, uh, in, in the aftermath of the CHIPS Act. I want to see the some of the Chips Act funding uh, uh, uphold right. those as you know high priority items because of their significance for national defense. Uh, and and very brief, uh, briefly, I mean, I, I wanted uh, I was going to make a joke about antiquing, but what is the <laughs> approach we need uh, to these antiquated technologies that are still foundational to our military capability? Right, I mean, you can't really put a yeah. fast chip in. Right time. I mean, there's a lot of things that get tied to that. And some of these older chips, by the way, are much more resistant, rad hardened often. Right. right I mean, what, right, what's right. the industrial structure we need, given that we're, we're not going to be going, you know, we'll, we'll always be lagging generations. We need foundries producing antiquated stuff just because yeah. we need them. Just give it give the audience a little bit of a taste of the ecosystem we already have, but we'll yeah. still need for some time yeah. longer. So, so the, the ecosystem we have, I mean, we primarily rely on this model of trusted foundries. That's where you have a dedicated foundry that's making microelectronic components that are particularly tailored for the DoD. Um, when originally conceived, I, I, I submit to you that the folks who conceived this model were very well-intentioned and were, were thinking through this problem of security and came up with this solution. I would also submit to you that in many ways, that solution is what has hobbled the DOD in its ability to incorporate new technologies. And the reason is the following. It kind of comes back to the DOD is a relatively small purchaser of microelectronics. So the DOD is not going to drive the market. It's not going to drive innovation, except, you know, again, in a few key areas. Um, so you wind up with these foundries that, frankly, don't have a, a business case to update, they don't have the capability to update. So your DOD microelectronics wind up being a generation or two behind. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, three nanometer right. uh, nodes on you know state of the art microelectronics, and yet we've got DOD systems that are operating at you know still at forty five or ninety nanometer size. It right. also leads to some other bad behavior, which is you know if you're using old stuff, if you're using old chips, for example. At some point, the manufacturer is going to, manufacturer is going to say, eh, all right, time to sunset this component. And so what we've seen is the DoD has had to do end-of-life buys 
in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes to basically fill a supply cabinet, metaphorical supply cabinet, with stockpiled components insured against the failure of current systems. And so you, you spend a lot of money to buy stuff that by definition is obsolete. And that's why the manufacturers stopped incorporating it. Um, right. So there are a couple, there, there are a lot of complexities to this, a lot of complexities. And uh, not the least of which is if you, if you go to the commercial, if you go to the commercial curve, if you start using the commercial market, it immediately raises questions. Well, how do you validate? How do you verify? How do you make sure you have all that security in place? And these are clearly issues that, that, that must be addressed. Um, I also think you, you wind up phasing it in. So as you've got new weapon systems, you move those new weapon systems onto the commercial curve and you design them in such a way, you build in the design that they can be upgraded as your available microelectronics can be updated. Uh, all of those chips are actually in the same facility where the Ark of the Covenant is being kept. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's somewhere, right. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere in the Being desert. guarded by top men. <laughs> yes, top, top men. Top men. Um, yes, you're one of those people. That's all I got to tell you, doctor. <laughs> uh, the um, let me ask you one last uh, question, which is uh, control, right? Um, I find yeah. all of this technology to be utterly fascinating. Was was up at GE when they uh, uh, sort of showed us the work they're doing on the uh, rotating combustion uh, approach, which which is uh, very uh, interesting. And again, I mean, each one of these things are uh, right, ideally simpler. Uh, you you don't have complex uh, components uh, per se, but you've actually thought through uh, the process. Once you get a hypersonic vehicle up to hypersonic speeds, uh, mm -hmm. it is surrounded by a plasma ball. And, and so the question is how you see through the plasma ball to control it, because many people, some people have suggested, well, the Chinese, you know, warheads, you know, they can't see Vago, they're blinded yeah. by the plasma. And I would submit to you, that's not a good way of looking at it. And yeah. the second piece is, how do you control it, right? And The Economist had a great uh, story in citing, I think, NASA work on how you can actually use electromagnetics to shape the pulse to control the glide body, uh, for example, or the hypersonic vehicle. Talk to us about the technology sure. of, of both, you know, how you guide some of these weapons and the misconceptions that exist, and then also how you steer them because misconceptions exist well you know i mean the aerodynamic surfaces can't take that kind of you know blah 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 uh, yeah. what, what are the ways folks ought to be thinking about so, both of these vaccines? so let me start with a very basic issue of when your vehicle is is surrounded by a plasma and not all hypersonic things are surrounded by a plasma you actually have to be going at a pretty hefty mach number not just a hypersonic mach number mach five or six but really a higher mach number above nine or 10 for these plasma effects to start to, to be important. Um, it gets a lot of attention because in, in the early days of the space program, of course, you had the plasma, plasma sheath around a re-entering spacecraft and you lost communications. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Right Stuff, there, there's that moment when you know John Glenn is, is, is re-entering and they're not sure if his heat shield is on or not. And did he survive or didn't he survive? And they have no way of communicating with him. Well, that was the past. Um, the space shuttle, we kind of figured out how to communicate all the way down, all the way through reentry. And that was uh, uh, appropriate location of antennas and relay points. But more importantly, those space applications, those space vehicles are traveling generally much higher Mach numbers than the weapons and, and atmospheric systems that we're talking about for military applications. Um, if you're talking about a cruise missile that's going at Mach 5 or Mach 6, Plasma is not really an issue. It's not traveling fast enough for plasma to be an issue. Um, only when you're talking about the higher Mach numbers that might be associated with boost gliders. But remember, 
the boost gliders, any boost glider, only spends a portion of its time at the really high hypersonic Mach numbers. Boost gliders, by their definition, they get boosted on a solid rocket motor, they separate off that motor, and then they glide down. But as they're gliding down, they're losing energy, and their Mach number is dropping. And one of the one of the things you see is that in the end game, at the end of at the end of the trajectory, most of these hypersonic things are they're still supersonic, but they're barely touching the top end of the, the, the I'm sorry the bottom end of what we consider to be hypersonic. I mean, you were talking about you know uh, 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 terminal velocities that are in the Mach three, Mach four, maybe Mach five range, where plasma is not an issue. Now. Let's suppose you've got a system where plasma is an issue, and you know you alluded to that. Can you use the plasma advantage? First of all, we we know we know of ways to create holes in the plasma environment. Um, we knew about that as part of the Gemini program. They actually, in the 1960s, they did experiments of creating holes in the plasma environment just by injecting cold. That's through right. It. So there are there are ways right. to do that, but. Um, more importantly, can you use the plasma to your advantage? Well, it's actually kind of a funny story about that. Um, at the end of the, the Cold War, as the Berlin Wall came down, and the Russians you know, were putting a lot of stuff up for sale. And one of the things that they put up for sale, one of the things that they started sharing with us was work that they had done on plasma manipulation for hypersonic vehicles. And that's for control. So, for example, you apply an electromagnetic field. It distorts the plasma going over the vehicle. It gives you, uh, you know, a moment of some sort that allows you to direct the vehicle. Also for drag reduction. Right. So the Russians had claimed that they could do drag reduction by creating electromagnetic fields in front of the vehicle. Um, uh, and some of the work they were doing, they were depositing. They're basically doing uh, direct the energy in front of the vehicle. Um, we spent a lot of time, and by we, I mean the United States, and especially the United States Air Force, spent a lot of time investigating a lot of these applications. And I hate to say it, but in many cases, we figured out, you know, there really isn't a there there. Um, so are there ways to control your hypersonic vehicle without plasma manipulation? Yes. Yes, of course there are. And we've done it. And and they're kind of the traditional ways of doing it. You've got moving surfaces. Right. You've got control flaps. Um, if it, you, 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 can, you can have uh, uh, small rockets, small jets to aid in the control. Um, we know how to do this. It's not like we're dependent on plasma magic to control these vehicles. We don't have to depend on that. Right. Um, projecting into the future, will there be a time when we get better control of hypersonic systems by manipulating a plasma sheath? Maybe, but it has to come in the trades. And the trades are any plasma manipulation system is going to have weight. you got to generate that electromagnetic field. You need to have a power right. source. You need the generator. And so it's a systems engineering question of whether that approach saves you weight, saves you power, maybe is better for packaging than the more traditional approach of having an actuator that's moving, uh, move, move, that's move, moving a, a control surface. Uh, we we are uh, have been able to do this kind of stuff uh, in uh, the past. We can do it uh, in the future and anything that invokes uh, the great name of project gemini is uh, okay in my book uh, <laughs> one of one of my favorite spacecraft of all time uh, I Gus, agree. Uh, I agree. Gus grissom's uh, uh, masterpiece uh, in many respects uh, although I, I still am not sure i would have spent 2 weeks uh, you know although frank borman and jim Lovell both make delightful companies so i suppose it would be less bad if you were stuck in a spacecraft with i know but 2 2 weeks in a volume that's 
roughly the size of a Volkswagen Beetle in orbit for two weeks. Yeah, I, I, I they, they, they were ama- they were amazing human beings. Let me just put that out there. Yes, <laughs> courageous and uh, another great reason why they were also on the Apollo 8 mission. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Lewis, thanks very much for joining us. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Any any last thoughts? What What's the technology uh, since last we spoke that you think is the most exciting? Well, actually, Vago, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the propulsion work that you saw at GE. Um, you know, so the, the work that you mentioned, the rotating, ro- rotating detonation engine is incredibly appealing for because it's a path to building a better propulsion system. It's better, if you can do it, it's better than existing turbine technology. And it does though, by instead of burning the fuel uh, 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 gradually, it comes pressure, it does detonation where you're exploding your fuel. It leads to a more efficient engine. You get more of the fuel energy deposited for propulsion work than you do with more traditional methods. Um, to me, what I find so exciting about that, we've gotten so, so good at building gas turbine engines. It's hard to ma- imagine how we make that thing better. Right. The way you make it better is you change the thermodynamic cycle. So you go from what we call deflagration, that's gradual burning, to detonation. And if you can do it, it really opens up a whole world of possibilities. Um, so that one's, that one's got me pretty stoked. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, very exciting, and you were uh, among the first uh, few people who uh, uh, there was no playing uh, there was no playing the game of uh, you know I wonder what they're going to be unveiling up here. Uh, and uh, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> although it, it, they had announced it, and I was like, hey, we were up here, and you were like, oh, it's it's the rotating detonation yeah. engine. Yeah, um, yeah. If I if I by the way, if I can if I can put in an, an unabashed plug. So Purdue has done significant work on on rotating detonation engines. So one of our faculty members, Professor Carson Slaybaugh, is again one of the world's leaders in in this area, and he's actually built rotating detonation engines at Purdue. He tested them at Purdue, and that's not why I'm enthusiastic. Well, okay, that's part of the reason I'm enthusiastic about it. But I just happen to think it's a it's a really neat propulsion technology. Uh, it is, and we've got about thirty seconds left. Seriously, I know this is a decades long joke between the two of uh, two of us, uh, but. Um, you know, it's it's interesting, a uh, very interesting Florida company called Helicon Chemical that's developed a unique binder that would increase the range uh, of solid rocket motors by up to 30 uh, percent. And yet um, what I find is interesting is how the ecosystem has a hard time with somebody who has a significantly better mousetrap. What's what's the key to getting ideas like this? Uh, more broadly accepted, something that everybody agrees would be a quantum step change. And yet to get it through the process to the other side is is the big challenge. What's what's the key to doing this, Mark? Because throughout your career, you sort of championed how to move some of these people through gates and wickets faster. And yet yeah. they're all, ma- you know what I mean? The, the, the Navy doesn't accept the Air Force's test results, by, you know, or, or whatever. What's what's the way to do this in your estimation? I'm, I'm not oh, trying wow. to corner on this but i think it's a it's a trenchant point that you know we need more range we've got somebody who can give you more range it's as simple as changing the binder and yet that seems to be a big leap for for some in this process so wow that's a subject for a whole whole separate podcast because you know a lot of the work that i've done in the in the pentagon out of the pentagon has been focused on just that issue which is how do you get a really, really good idea into the hands of the warfighter. 
Um, there are a lot of organizations that are set up to help with that process. We talk a lot about the famous valley of death, getting something out of a laboratory into the hands of a warfighter. Although for various reasons, and if you have me back, I'll explain it. For various reasons, I don't call it a valley of death. I call it a mountain of death. Um, you know, we, we do demonstration projects. We, we show off the technology. Um, I, I, will, I will just say it is an incredible, incredible challenge. So I was reminded by a, a colleague just yesterday that back in 2007, when I was Air Force Chief Scientist, uh, I took a delegation down. We met with some of the senior technology people at the Air Force's Air Combat Command. And at the time, we were pushing really hard to do a hypersonic cruise missile, something that would be a direct follow-on to the X-51. And this is three years before before we, we uh, flew X-51. And I have to tell you, as the Chief Scientist of the Air Force, I still failed absolutely spectacularly because, you know, you're right. There's a certain conservatism, right? We've got something. It works. We know it works. Why would I change to your new thing? And I'm not sure if that new thing is going to work, even though you promised me it will be better. And, and look, it's, it's one, it's, I hate to say it's one of the, one of the challenges that we face every day in trying to introduce these new technologies. Um, uh, but I, you, I can say, I guess, let if I can leave on a positive note, I can tell you, I think the, the Department of Defense is really stepping up to the plate in this. And you see it in so many different organizations, the Defense Innovation Unit, for example, AFWorks, um, just see the, these different approaches that are being made to create these front doors so good ideas can make their way into the department. Uh, I love uh, your analogy. You're, <laughs> you're, either, you're either burning to death in the valley of death with no shadow under the sun's anvil, or you're freezing to death uh, at the top of a mountain. a mountain. At the end, you're still dead. You're still dead. And, you know, I will say, you know, we complain about how difficult it is for things to make it from the laboratory into the hands of the warfighter. Well, frankly, not everything should make it from the laboratory into the hands of the warfighter. I can't tell you how many times I would sit in meetings where someone had a brilliant idea, a great technology, and they'd present it to the warfighter, and the warfighter, uh, the operational people would point out the, 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 the reasons that their great idea just simply would not work. Um, so you want to have a filtering process. You want to have a lot of ideas out there and you want to narrow down the ones that are really going to make a difference. The problem is making sure the filter isn't so tight that those really good ideas, those game changing ideas don't make it through. They have to make it through. And, uh, you know, better, better, better uh, propellants, better energetic materials. I could read you a chapter and verse and how antiquated our energetic materials are and how other countries are, are much more sophisticated than, than we are. High temperature microelectronics, coming back to the early part of the discussion. If we can enable high temperature microelectronics, the impact that it has across the board with our high speed weapon systems, extending range, improving performance is profound, but you just keep coming back to that conservatism. Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Already looking forward to having you back on again. Thanks very much. And uh, can't can't wait to see where you're going to be in another two months when you're there for a full year. Still going to be here, I think, unless you know something I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I do not. I wish you nothing but Godspeed. Uh, thanks very much again, Mark. Well, go. thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. And thanks very much to all of you for joining us. We'll be back again tomorrow. Till then, hope you have a great day.